From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When a 15-year-old boy died by suicide last year, his parents decided to include the cause of death in his obituary. In hindsight, I'm glad we were as transparent as we are because the silence around this whole topic is deafening. Now some friends of that 15-year-old are trying to get the word out, too. They've put together a guide with their perspectives to help parents help them. Then the old way of marketing doesn't always work these days. Now businesses are offering experiences to make the sale. Plus how a deadly wildfire in California turned into a crusade for a Colorado man. He's now nominated for CNN Hero of the Year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. There's a movement among suicide prevention groups to include in obituaries when someone died by suicide. That's what the parents of 15-year-old Robbie Eckert chose to do when he died last October. Shortly after his death, we spoke with his parents, Jason and Kari, about that decision. Kids are incredibly intelligent. What what were we going to say? He just suddenly passed away for no apparent reason. And in hindsight, I'm glad we were as transparent as we are because the silence around this whole topic is deafening. After their son's death, the Eckerts started Robbie's Hope to encourage teens to talk about their struggles. More recently, some of the teens in the group wrote a handbook to help parents talk to their kids. One of those teens is Olivia Miller, a junior at Lakewood High School. Welcome, Olivia. Thank you. Jason Eckert, Robbie's father, is also here. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you. Jason, you spoke with us last year about your regret that you never had a conversation with Robbie about how he was doing. Did it just not occur to you or was something holding you back? No, I think we were um, fairly ignorant at the time to just the massive scale of mental health issues among teens in our country and in Colorado. I mean, we were blind to the issue as a lot of parents, I think, are. And you've said Robbie's friends and teachers didn't notice anything either. In retrospect, do you see any evidence that Robbie was suffering terribly? Um, No, I mean, that's something that has plagued us, that question, for the past 13 months. And, um, you know, was that day, was he acting maybe a, a little bit differently in, in class and with, with his friends? Possibly, but trying to distinguish that from normal teenager behavior, I don't know that we would have ever have identified that. How do you think Robbie would have reacted if you or Kari had tried to have a conversation with him about how he was doing? Um, I think, you know, it would have been... Um, certainly an anxious and difficult conversation for both of us because we hadn't previously had those conversations. But he's the kind of kid and we had the kind of relationship that I think he would have opened up if we would have taken that initial step. I think that's true for most teens. And we really encourage um, through our messaging and through the handbook that 
This needs to be a continual conversation because to, to start having it when you think there's a problem is actually several steps too late. And mm -hmm. if you have a continual dialogue, um, the chances of catching something early and in helping the teens in your life, whether they're your children or um, your athletes if you're a coach or your students if you're a teacher, um, is significantly greater. Across the country, the teen suicide rate is up 25 percent, and Colorado had the highest increase in the nation in the teen suicide rate between 2016 and 2019. Any sense, based on your efforts over the last year, um, as to why this is happening? Um, what we hear pretty consistently from our teens is the level of pressure and stress in fear of disappointment, um, not only to their parents, but to all the adults that are in their lives is um, tremendous. But Kari and I also believe that there has to be some other factor going on in the Mountain West. So the, the states straddling the Rocky Mountains, six of the top eight states for teen suicide are in that um, area. That cannot be coincidence. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the demographics, it's not in rural areas. Certainly that's a problem, but large cities like Denver are much, much higher in Colorado Springs than our rural areas from a, a rate standpoint. So there is something that we are missing. Any guess? Uh, no, we've been in um, pretty consistent dialogue with um, Children's Hospital Colorado and their uh, teen mental health uh, group and we were surprised to learn how little funding there actually is for research for mental health in this country. Um, it is a fraction, a small percentage of what um, cancer receives, for example, from the National Institute of Health. And from a foundation standpoint, um, besides working with teens as a key focus for us moving forward, because we have to start understanding the root causes that are driving this. I, it's it's frighteningly um, under a lack of understanding um, in that whole area. Olivia, let's bring you in. You were good friends with Robbie, and you said you knew something was different in some way about him the day he took his life. What did you notice? Um, so normally he's always very cheerful and making jokes and everything. And I had him that day in my Spanish class, and he just seemed a little off, just a little down. And I just, I didn't know really what was going on and I just kind of checked up on him I was like hey is like everything okay like you can talk to me and he said he was okay and he's gonna fix it so like not to worry about it so I was like okay and then later that night I kind of just mentioned it to him again just was like checking up on you you okay and he was like yeah I'm okay he's like I'm gonna go do something I'll be right back and then I never heard from him after hmm. you're one of the teenagers who put together this handbook for parents what kind of perspective are you able to offer adults that perhaps pr professionals can't? I think just for adults not to be afraid to have the conversation. Um, a lot, I feel like a lot of adults are scared, more scared than like their teens. Um, but also just kind of op asking open-ended questions too to get the conversation going and to uh, keep them involved because that's kind of where it starts and kind of where they start to open up. Why are adults scared to talk to their kids? I think 
because they're scared of like an outcome. Um, many think that when you ask a child, like, are you suicidal? Are you depressed? And it kind of like plants a seed in their head, which is not the case. It's kind of just telling them that it's okay not to be okay. And like, it's okay to talk about these things and to get the help needed. Parents will tell you that it can be pretty hard to get teens to talk about just about anything. Um, did you find uh, while writing this handbook whether there's a good time to get a kid to talk? Uh, there is. Every teen is different. Um, so from a parent's perspective, it kind of just depends on your child. Um, some people don't like to be talked in their room um, just because that's a safe space and they don't want to be associated with that. Some people don't like to have the conversation in a car because it makes them feel trapped and they can't get out of the conversation. So just matters kind of just take a note of where most of your conversations happen with your child and like just go off from there. And these recommendations you make, are they all generated by kids or is this a combination of expert advice with kids' views? They're all from kids. Um, at one of our HOPE meetings, we had this topic, how would you want your parents to talk to you about one of these subjects? And we all broke into groups, all different ideas, and we combined it into a handbook. Is there something you learned that parents should try not to say to their kids um, when they talk to them? Um, I think parents should not refer to their past um, and not make it about them, not say, oh, well, back in my day, things were different, like my life was harder. Because ultimately, it's about the kid. And when you start putting yourself in it, then that's when they start to shut down and not want to talk anymore because the focus isn't really on them anymore. It's on you. So a parent might think it's a good idea to try to relate, but that's mm -hmm. not helpful to the kid. Exactly. Um, what are the biggest challenges you face in your life right now as a teenager? Um, I think the biggest one is school. Academics definitely have got harder and expectations have um, begun to rise. Um just trying to decide colleges, you mm. know, a lot of people ask like, oh, what are you going to major in? And you're, well, I'm only 16. I just don't know. Like, I just don't have my life planned out. And so then you kind of realize, well, maybe I should. And then it's just getting really overwhelming and stressful. So have you uh, talked to your parents openly about this or did Robbie's death prompt you to talk more with them? I think Robbie's death kind of hit me that I can be open to my parents. Me and my parents, we've been really close. I tell them everything and anything. Um, and so I have a really good relationship with them. But I think that for both of us, um, this kind of just realized that we're okay to have conversations like these and that they shouldn't be like pushed to like the back burner. Like it's okay to talk. So we hear a lot about social media as a reason for this increasing teen angst and depression. Has this ever been true for you? Have so Has something ever happened that made you feel terrible, something that you read on social media? I mean, I think so. social media nowadays is a lot of comparing yourself to others and kind of just like, you see posts and you want to be like that one girl or like that one guy and you kind of just wonder how can I do this like what can I do to change when really like you don't have to change because social media is just it's showing the good and never the bad and so I think just a lot of people focus on 
um, like the bright side of like the whole aspect of their life. And Jason, I wonder if doing what you do and learning about kids and, you know, their tendency to depression and worry and stress, uh, has this been therapeutic for you over the past year? Um, yes, in some regards. I mean, I, I don't think, um, from a mental health standpoint, Kari and I would be in a very good spot without the work that we're doing. The converse of that though is, um, every time we work with teens, we have another reminder of Robbie not being in our life. So it's this tension between, um, wanting to to fix this and and constantly having that daily reminder um, in front of us. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Jason Eckert's son, Robbie, died by suicide last October. Jason Eckert and his wife, Kari, started Robbie's Hope to help other kids talk more openly about depression and anxiety. Olivia Miller was one of Robbie's good friends, and she's active in the group Robbie's Hope. Miller and other teens created a handbook to help parents talk with their teens. You can find the handbook online at robbiesnoapostrophe-hope.com. And if you or anyone you know is struggling, you can contact the Colorado Crisis Line, 1-844-493-8255, or go to coloradocrisisservices.org, chat online, or text TALK to 38255. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Vaping will be at the top of the agenda during the upcoming legislative session in January. That's when Colorado lawmakers will consider new measures that would restrict it. It was a relatively marginal issue last session, but Colorado's team vaping epidemic and a wave of vaping-related illnesses and deaths have changed that. CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland and health reporter John Daly are with us. And Benta, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Benta, what major changes are lawmakers thinking about? I talked to several lawmakers, and they said there's likely going to be a bill to increase the age to buy tobacco and vaping products. Uh, That's definitely in the works, and it has some bipartisan support. And companies like Juul have come out in favor of raising the purchase age. So that may be one of the least controversial proposals we see next session. Another idea that's people are talking about is not finalized. That will be a ban of flavored vaping products. There's also ideas to increase taxes related to vaping. Okay, so last year, the most high-profile vaping-related legislation was a bill to let voters weigh in on a tobacco tax. It didn't make it through, but lawmakers did make some changes. They added vape pens to the list of what people aren't allowed to smoke indoors in public places. And they gave cities the ability to pass more stringent tobacco regulations than the state. But there may be even more momentum this time around because of all this controversy. Has the political landscape changed? 
I think people are more aware of what's going on. The country's had a wave of vaping-related illnesses. The White House has discussed stricter regulations, although recently President Donald Trump may be backing off some of those ideas he talked about supporting. And according to a national survey, Colorado has the highest youth vaping rate in the country. So all of these factors have pushed new regulations up the priority list for some lawmakers, and especially as we hear of young people getting sick. Yeah, John, uh, there are so many young people that we've heard of in the news that are getting ill. Absolutely. You know, those illnesses are are a big deal. It's become headline news nationally and locally. And, you know, Colorado likes ranking number one in a lot of things, but certainly not team vaping. Also, local municipalities have started to take this on. So you're starting to get a patchwork of rules, and that can be really frustrating for industry. Companies like Juul have thrown their support behind a 21 age limit for buying nicotine products. On the other hand, you've also seen the vaping industry get a lot more organized. You're seeing pushback at reforms at the national level and in other states. Industry and vape shops and vaping consumers are getting organized and speaking out. And there seems to be a lot of support for Tobacco 21, T21, raising the legal purchase age. But you can definitely expect a fight over the push for higher nicotine taxes and certainly a flavor ban as well. You mentioned Juul is supporting some vaping regulations. And this idea of tighter rules for vaping seems to have some bipartisan support. Yes, that's correct. Right now, Democrats control the legislature in Colorado and the governor's office. One of the main bills to increase the purchase age to 21 is likely going to be put forward in the state house by a Republican, Colin Larson. He's a representative from Ken Carl. He'll be working alongside Democratic lawmakers. Kevin Priola, another Republican, a state senator, also said it's something he's open to. And Governor Jared Polis says he'll keep an open mind to it as well. Not to say there won't be some significant differences among lawmakers on other regulations. For instance, some Republicans I've talked to say too many restrictions on vaping products could enable a black market and it could actually leave more people using traditional tobacco. And Representative Larson says he doesn't support a flavor ban. He wants adults to be able to use these products, especially as a way to quit smoking. And not every Democrat may be okay with a flavor ban either. The governor hasn't said whether he would be on board with it. So supporters will have to really analyze whether it's worth introducing this and whether they could pass it. This may not be an issue that always falls strictly on party lines. Here's Democratic Representative Yadira Caraveo. She's the legislature's only pediatrician, and she's been involved in a lot of these discussions on vaping regulations. And she's someone who really does support strict policy proposals if they could get them through. I think the overall conversation is how many of these can we get passed? We don't want to, you know, jeopardize the whole package because one part of it is controversial. John, what's the logic behind raising the nicotine purchasing age? Uh, The biggest concern in Colorado is with teens using vape devices, and they already aren't allowed to buy them until they're 18. Well, that's true. But if you talk to young people, they'll tell you there's been virtually no barrier to teens getting vape products. I talked to Julian Lavendier. He's a college student at CSU. He started vaping in high school in the Denver area. He thinks raising the legal purchase age to 21 could help rein in teen vaping. He says when he was in high school, younger students often bought their vape products through a social source. 
through, you know, people who were 18 seniors in high school that could just walk into a gas station and, and, and get everything they needed. Public health advocates point to research showing young people who are currently using Juul vaping products, the most popular brand, predominantly get these products through social sources. That's friends and peers. And it's similar to how they get their hands on other tobacco products. So advocates say a key strategy is to deter or penalize purchasers who are of legal age giving or selling products to minors. And it's interesting, this flavor ban seems to be a real sticking point with folks. Yes, I mean, Republicans especially say it could really hurt adult vapors, and they think it's really a, a freedom issue. This is a common argument from vape shops and some adult consumers and industry. Greg Conley with the American Vaping Association says it's not just young people who like e-cigarette flavors. Flavors are incredibly important to adult smokers looking to quit. Last session, lawmakers looked at taxing vaping products. Is that still on the table this coming year? Yes, I think it will be. Governor Jared Polis would really like to see that happen. And why does Polis like this approach? He says he thinks it'll be effective. He's told Colorado Matters that the price point is extremely relevant, and he thinks it's the most important factor. And Polis says there's a loophole right now because... Vaping products don't pay the tobacco tax, and they're exempt. A spokesman for the governor also said he's open to all data-driven approaches. And even if the purchase age went up, Polis says that's not enough on its own to really make significant changes. And Andrea, another interesting thing here is that just last week, the governor solicited opinions about this on his Facebook page. He linked to a CPR story about possible options. He mentioned raising the legal age, a flavor ban, and also removing the exemption of vaping from the tobacco tax that Bento was just talking about. He didn't say more about where he stands, but he did get a lot of feedback and nearly 700 comments. So it seems like it definitely generated some conversation. Now, John, you've reported there's one change in the works that's perhaps not um, getting much attention right now, licensing for tobacco retailers. What does that mean? Well, public health advocates are pushing for retailers that sell tobacco to have to apply for a license to sell it, and that would include all vaping products. The idea is to ensure the state can identify retailers who may be selling vaping products to minors. Then they could be held accountable And some businesses may like this approach because it'll create a level playing field with the rules being the same for everybody. Right now, Colorado doesn't require a license of any kind to sell tobacco. It's one of only a dozen states across the country who do not have this requirement, according to public health advocates. Well, thanks to both of you for joining us. John, Benta, we appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Andrea. CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland, and health reporter, John Daly. They'll be following these issues during the legislative session, which starts next month. You can find more of our coverage about what to expect in January at CPR.org. When we come back, Disruptors, our series on innovation and entrepreneurship. Today, how marketers are creating an experience to convince people to buy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The pressure to excel in school is taking a toll on teenagers. In a recent national survey, academic stress was cited as the number one stressor in teens' lives for both over- and underachievers. Like almost every day, I'd come home with four to five hours of homework. After a while, I just kind of stopped doing it. 
I'm Jenny Brendine. Chapter two of the CPR news series, Teens Under Stress, takes us into the classroom. These stories and more at CPR.org teens. Over the centuries, businesses have used marketing to boost sales. Town criers walked the streets hawking products. Traveling salesmen knocked on doors selling things like books and vacuums. And there was mass marketing, ads in newspapers, magazines, TV, and digital media. Now a new approach has emerged. It's the subject of today's Disruptors, where we explore trends in Colorado's entrepreneurial world. It's called experiential marketing, and it's about creating memorable experiences to grab consumers' attention. In a digital world, it's also about connecting real-life humans to different brands. Joining us is Sally Balbaki Yassin, and she teaches marketing in the College of Business at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Sally, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. And Justin Moss is the founder and CEO of the experiential marketing firm, The Pineapple Agency. Justin, welcome. Thank you. Sally, let's start with uh, this whole big concept uh, that I should say can mean slightly different things to different people. Uh, But when you think of experiential marketing, what are some examples? So examples, I would say, are um, brands that touch your senses, your feelings, your emotions. Um, So think about um, Nike, think about Starbucks, um, ways that they have connected and created an experience for consumers, whether in the store or online digitally. You have an example? Um, so, for example, Starbucks, you go into the store and you're not there just to buy coffee. You're there for the experience of being around the people, being in the store, being able to use the different um, Wi-Fi, ex- have it being around the people, sitting in the um, spaces, doing your own work, while also having that experience of the Starbucks status kind of brand. And those holiday cups they give out. Oh, yes. Also part of the experience, definitely, and the colors and all that. Why are businesses turning to this approach? Well, consumers always want more. Our expectations are high, and we want we're all about senses and feelings and we want things to touch and um, sense and feel and capture our emotions. It's not just about the functional of a car gets you from A to B. It's really about that um, red Ferrari that makes that noise when you turn it on and also gets you from A to B. I mean, are there just too many traditional ads today that their effect is getting diluted? I mean, I remember when one TV ad for a toy would be enough to get every kid wanting it. There's a ton of competition and there's a million toys, right? So now around the holidays, it's it's about being able to grasp that consumer's attention with a toy that differentiates itself from others by creating that experience. So you go into the store and you can touch the toy and play with the toy versus it just being on the shelf and looking at it. And I guess another roadblock for advertisers is that you can block ads on your computer if you don't want them. Right. And we can do that on TV too with DVR and we can just skip through the ads. And so now it's about your online and your on Amazon looking for something and you see all these ads pop up that are personalized specifically to you. You're on Facebook, you're on Instagram, specific personalized ads pop up that are directed specifically to you based on what you've searched and looked at. And so it's changed the retail world. Though you can block them out if you want to. Not the personalized ad on social media. You can block out the ones on TV and some on digital, Mm -hmm. but yes, not all of them. 
Um, Justin, let's turn to you. You founded the Pineapple Agency. You call it an experiential marketing firm. What are some examples of this kind of marketing that you've used recently? Sure, yeah. I mean, we 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 use experiential marketing to emotionally connect brands to consumers in, in very immersive ways. And if we're doing it right, we're, we're creating ambassadors, we're creating uh, storytellers for that brand. And, and one of our most recent projects is, is we delivered Steph Curry, a, a basketball player for the Warriors. We delivered his new sneaker for Under Armour by drones. And we ran a digital scavenger hunt to find these landing zone areas around the San Francisco, Oakland area. And it amounted to about 155 million impressions in just a four hour period. So uh, really, really fun and really engaging and immersive and, and including the consumer in the, the campaign. So it takes a lot of imagination and you're trying to rally people and get them excited about something. Um, what do you think is the best example ever of experiential marketing? Wow, that's that's a tough one. I think uh, experiential marketing has come such a long way uh, in, in especially the last 10 years or so. Uh, I, for one, am a big fan of Bud Light's Whatever Town USA. The first one ap- actually took place here in Crested Butte, where they took over the whole town. They painted it blue. They had a lot of imaginary uh, creative stunts. Uh, you know, Vanilla Ice was driving around in an ice cream truck with Little John in there. Uh, they they had all sorts of crazy stuff going on. But more importantly, they used the content that they were collecting and creating for further marketing. So they used it to create TV commercials. They used it to create social media strategies, which then in, it, it created the consumer. It allowed the consumer to be a part of this strategy. So does old time advertising, is that just going away, getting it's not it's not in fashion anymore? I don't think it's going away. I think there's a place. I think that what you're starting to see uh, is that experiential is being coupled with traditional advertising. So like I said, you're taking this experience, you're we call it video storytelling. You're capturing this content and you're repurposing this content for maybe a TV buy. So instead of going into a studio and spending three million bucks on a TV commercial, you could spend X on an experience and now you have hundreds if not thousands of hours of content to repurpose. And the last thing I'll say about that is I, I know Sally and you mentioned it, what, what we're essentially trying to do is cut through the clutter. There's a lot of noise out there in marketing. Mm-hmm. You're being inundated with ads on TV and digital, and we feel like bringing it down to the human level, the experience level, you're cutting through that clutter because now the consumer wants to be a part of that ad or see that ad. They want to be marketed with, not marketed to anymore. And then does this uh, give you as a marketer and your client a better chance of being covered by the media um, once you do these kind of um, marketing, make these big marketing efforts? Absolutely. And I'm shaking my head. Yes, in excitement, because that's our goal, right, is is how can we get earned media? How can we get PR? How can we get social media impressions without buying them? Uh, And that's all part of the strategy that we look to come up with experiential. Now, keep in mind, experiential isn't always this big, grandiose event or experience. Sometimes it's just a strategy that still emotionally connects to somebody, but in in, you know, maybe it's a, a billboard that has a messaging that turns into a scavenger hunt, or maybe it's a, you know, a, a digital uh, 
Instagram scavenger hunt. It, there's a lot of ways that experiential can go. We also do a lot of work in the trade show space. So we create experiences around the trade show booth so that if our clients are not seeing the attendance levels that they want because they're next to a big brand that sees all the, the love, we treat, create that experience for the before, during, and after. So how can we connect to the attendee before the trade show, during the trade show, and then most importantly, after? And to both of you, does this approach sometimes run the risk of um, not reaching enough people, uh, not doing enough mass marketing? I think so. I mean, I think one of the biggest questions we get from clients that haven't done experiential or even have is what's my ROI? What are we, how are we going to, how are we going to, you know, quantify the spend and and there's always that risk especially when you're trying to get people a consumer to leave their house and do something it's always harder to get somebody to physically leave and go do something especially when it's it's brand related but what i will say is a new trend that we're starting to see is brands are starting to charge minimal amounts for their these experiences so that they're now able to attract a consumer that really wants to be there and because of that, they get to offset some of the costs as well. So you're starting to see newer trends developing in experiential. Sally? And I definitely think that experiential is happening um, digitally now, too. And so consumers are able to stay home and behind that screen and still participate in the experience. And so um, Frito-Lay does this whole create your um, flavors for chips. Mm -hmm. And consumers are able to participate in that experience and create the flavors. And then if their flavors are chosen, then they go and participate in that experience um, physically. And so th there are ways that they can do it without physically going, but um, it's definitely that physical actually being there creates more of that emotional attachment to the brand and creating more of that um, loyal consumer that's loves the brand. Absolutely. I mean, that's why we talk a lot about the before, during, and after. Right. So we're creating this live experience, but how are we talking or communicating with the, the consumer before and then during, and then what are we doing digitally or traditionally to continue that conversation? So yeah, absolutely. Um, in some ways, this makes me think of the good old days, in many instances, getting face-to-face -face with customers. Do you think people have a longing, or some people, for this kind of interaction? I, I absolutely. I mean, I think experiential goes way back to the days of handing out free sodas on the boardwalk. You know, we're, we're calling it experiential because the technology is now enhancing these experiences. But I believe that, you know, any generation, you're on your phone, you're on your computer, you're in front of the TV so much that you're starting to see people wanting to get to these experiences. They want to visit the retail stores. They want to have some sort of interaction with either the brand or an influencer, as they say. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Sally Balbacki Yassine is an associate professor of marketing in the College of Business at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Justin Moss is the founder and CEO of the experiential marketing firm, The Pineapple Agency. It's in Denver. For our series, Disruptors, we've been talking about the experiential marketing as a way to reach consumers. When we come back, how one man turned devastating wildfires in California into a personal mission. Now he's being honored as a hero. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. You're back with Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The out-of-control wildfires in California. This fire is destroying everything in its path. It looks like a scene out of the apocalypse. It is just complete devastation. A deadly wildfire raced through the town of Paradise, California, just over a year ago. The fire killed at least 85 people and destroyed almost 15,000 homes. Here's one resident, Kathy, sifting through the ruins of her house. I raised my kids here. We had a lot of stuff. Most of it is gone. (laughs) Every memory I have of them is here. Their schools, their friends, learning how to ride bikes. You know, a lot of this stuff, I can't even tell what it was. It's just like in one day, your whole life changes. Eight months later, Kathy got a new mobile home. It came to her with the help of a Denver man named Woody Faircloth. Faircloth had put together a nonprofit for Paradise residents. It provides RVs and campers for people who lost their homes. Now he's one of 10 nominees for CNN's Hero of the Year Award, which will be announced Sunday. And Woody, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me a little bit more about Kathy's story. How did you find her? You know, Kathy was um, it's probably eight months after the fire, and we had been working with a church. It's a 12-member congregation church in Megalia, California, which is just west of Paradise. And she, um, she had been volunteering at the church and sleeping in her car, and one of the contacts we had there said, hey, this person's really deserving of a, of a motorhome. Is there any way you could help her out? And so... Anybody that's volunteering like that, we, we certainly want to help them. So we got her motor home a week later. And what was it like for her to get that home? It was pretty powerful. I mean, there's something that's so basic, you know, such a basic human need that's shelter. And um, to provide that to someone who doesn't have it anymore, who's had it their whole life, is, is such a powerful moment, such a powerful connector. What was it that drew you in about Paradise in particular? Why did you decide to help people there? You know, being being from Colorado, we're we're super wildfire aware here, of course, and we frankly have really dodged some some wildfire bullets here. We haven't had a, a, a really terrible one here on the Front Range. There's been, you know, one in Colorado Springs, and the Hayman fire, of course, was terrible. But so so we're aware of of wildfires. And last year, November eighth, is when this fire struck, and Thanksgiving was coming up, and I just couldn't imagine, you know, 50,000 people didn't have a home um, over Thanksgiving. And so my six-year-old daughter and I were kind of trying to figure out what we we're going to do the week of Thanksgiving. And, you know, it just occurred to us, why don't we get an RV and take it out and give it to a family who lost everything in the fire? So it was a way in, to observe the holiday season. It really was. You know, I've, I grew up in a really loving, intact home and had a lot of great Thanksgivings, and, and uh, I just couldn't imagine having lost everything right before. So, yeah, it was it was the best Thanksgiving we've ever spent. How did you find an RV to take there and, you know, to get over there? You know, I, I emailed pretty much everyone uh, in Colorado on Craigslist who was selling an RV that looked like we could possibly drive it all the way to California. 
and told them what we were thinking about doing. Some 50 first responders had lost their homes. And we just thought that was, you know, just not okay. And so um, I emailed probably 150 people selling RVs. And one guy got back to me the day before Thanksgiving and said, I'll sell you mine for $2,500. So mm. we started a GoFundMe and we bought the RV. It was the first time we'd ever been in an RV before. And we hopped in it the day before Thanksgiving, started driving. What was the town of Paradise like um, after the fire when you arrived? You know, I'd never been to that part of Northern California, and it was it's uncanny how similar it is to the Front Range. Um, Paradise, I would say, is kind of uh, geographically where Evergreen is on the Front Range. Mm -hmm. um, Lakewood is where Chico is, kind of down out of the foothills. Um, but it was just completely devastated. I mean, it was every home, every business um, – which is gone. I mean, it was a pile of ashes and people were just wandering around the streets in, in Chico, which was not affected by the fire, but um, in tents, in their cars. And these were people like you and me that had lived in homes and had jobs. And that was the thing that was so horrible about this fire. Not only did it burn everyone's home down, but it also burned the businesses down. So people were just left with nothing. Yeah. What did you hear from people you talked to there? They were just, you know, they were really in shock, frankly. They had um, this, this kind of trauma stare. I'd worked with refugees in, in Greece a few years back, and it was really surprising to me to see that same kind of look in people's eyes that had been through kind of severe trauma. So they were just lost. I mean, most people's long-term plan was, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? Um, much less, where are we going to sleep and what are we going to do? I and mean, it was just, it was horrifying to see the reality of what had happened. It sounds like you did a lot of putting yourself in their shoes, imagining it. Was, it. it was hard not to. I mean, we stopped. We were, we were kind of, you know, it was, a, it was an adventure for my daughter and I, and it took us, you know, two days to get out there. It's about 1,100 miles. And, um, you know, when we got there, we were kind of excited. But then we, we stopped for, for brunch, and three of the waitresses in the restaurant had lost their homes in the fire. We went to Target which was just ransacked. I mean, it looked like it probably does on Christmas Eve at 2 a.m. I mean, it was just destroyed people getting basic essentials from there. And the checkout lady had lost her home and just burst into tears. I mean, it was it was hard not to get really involved with what was happening. I mean, we had planned to go out, drop off the RV, come back, go to school, go to work, and carry on about our lives. But mm -hmm. once we got out there, it was just kind of hard to look away. And who got the first RV that you gave away? We gave it to a... A guy named Jeff Wood, he had a family of, uh, he had four kids and his wife, um, a six-week-old baby. Um, his his job, he's a solar technician. His job, he his business had not burned down or his company that he worked for. And so, but he was commuting about two hours to get to his, to his job. And I said, Jeff, why are you commuting two hours? He said, well, that's the only way I could keep my family together. And so, you know, as I told someone before, um, you know, I, I never lost my home to a fire and I couldn't keep my family together. So anything we could do to help a guy like that, we, we wanted to give it to him. So you've already given away 74. And um, how many more do you plan? You know, we're going we're gonna to keep doing this work as long as there's a need. I mean, we were out two weeks ago and there was a, we, gave a, we gave five RVs away. We gave one to a guy who'd been living in a tent for nine months so he could be close to his kids who were living with their mom in an area not impacted by the fire. I um, mean, we, you know, we pulled them. I like camping as much as the next person, but, um, you know, for nine months, that's a little much. So we put him in a trailer and he was just overjoyed. And 
um, you know, there's still so many people in need out there that, that we're going to keep doing it as long as there's a need. And, you know, we've kind of stumbled upon a model that um, people can donate RVs to us and mm-hmm. we can give them a full uh, uh, NADA value as a tax deduction mm-hmm. for their taxes. And, you know, if there are disasters in other places, you know, we think we could replicate this as well. What does the community of Paradise need now, you know, a year after the fire, more yeah, than a year? The church I mentioned that we've worked with, um, they serve two to 300 families a week um, with just basics. I mean, rice and beans. And um, right now they need winter clothes um, because winter's approaching. Um, we still have 100 to 200, 150 to 200 people on our waiting list for, for housing. Um, you know, the large FEMA, uh, the Red Cross, for the most part, um, have left. FEMA's operating a couple of mobile home parks. But, you know, if you were a renter and didn't have renter's insurance and lost everything you owned, the maximum FEMA payment out is around $11,000, $12,000, which doesn't last very long. So there's a whole other group of people that now are kind of finding themselves homeless again um, that shouldn't be in that situation. Talk about what the town is, what it looks like now. Um, you know, most of the, most of the fire damage is gone. There's still, I think the last number I heard, they still have to cut down about a million trees. But again, in terms of like relating it to Colorado, this would be the size of this is if golden evergreen, um, and Genesee all burned to the ground is what it would look like. And and these communities look very similar, lodgepole pines, um, kind of urban, uh, in the forest, if you will. And, um, it's just, you know, there's, I think, 11 houses have been rebuilt out of 15,000. Mm. Um, there are a lot of uh, RVs and, and trailers around that people are kind of living, trying to rebuild their homes. But it's going to take, um, you know, a century or more for that town to return the same way it was. Who are the individuals that are giving you these donations? You know, it's interesting. When we were out on our first trip, um, a good friend of mine who lives in Boulder named Anna. She contacted me um, because some media had picked up on our story and, and done some stories and people were calling and offering RVs and, you know, people were just crying out for help saying, I need a place to live. And so she built a database for me um, that's on our website. And, and if somebody needs housing, they can fill out a family intake form. If they're offering an RV, they can fill out an RV intake form. Um, and the people donating RVs are just from everywhere. We had a a municipal city bus driver who drove a bus for 35 years in Providence, Rhode Island. The day he retired, he drove one out to California. That was kind of the farthest distance. Um, but just all all shapes and sizes. I'm, I'm convinced that if, if you see an RV on the side of the house, there's one person in the house saying, when are we going to get rid of that thing? And there's somebody else in the house, you know, saying, I know I can get 15 grand for it. And we kind of, with the working with the IRS and the tax deductible piece of it, we've been able to find a way that everybody everybody wins. So let's talk about this CNN Heroes Award. Um, for those who aren't aware, CNN picks 10 nominees and posts the stories on their website. The public gets to vote. And that voting actually ends today. Then the Hero of the Year is announced on a live broadcast this Sunday, the 8th. The winner gets $100,000. How would you get nominated? We um, So CNN, they told us they get over 100,000 nominations from 100-plus countries. And um, somebody had nominated us we we really don't know who um and they they contacted us and made us a CNN hero of the week uh, a, a few months ago and then right before halloween they let us know that we were one of the top 10 finalists for hero of the year so my uh, my two daughters and i are flying to new york on friday and 
Sunday live on CNN, you'll be able to see whether we won or not. So it'll be it'll be interesting and fun. Tell me about what your daughter Luna has gotten out of this. She participated. She was out there with you. Um, what does this mean for her? You know, it, it's amazing what little kids, you know, how they see the world. And, you know, she had no front teeth on our first trip out there. Um, and, I, and when I told her what we were doing and asked her if she would be interested in doing it as well, you know, she just looked at me and smiled and said, God and Santa Claus are going to be really proud of us, Dad. And so that was kind of all I needed to know. And so we hit it out there. But she's, you know, every time we come back, we've been out six times now um, and kind of facilitated the other deliveries. But every time she, uh, we get back from one of those trips, I ask her, you know, Luna, do you want, want to do this again? She said, yes, Dad, let's do it. Let's go. So. And talk about what you've learned from this experience. What does it mean to you? You know, I think... Um, I firmly believe that in in disaster situations like that, you know, it's so easy to turn, you know, to look away, frankly, and um, or send thoughts and prayers and all those things that I think we all kind of intuitively do. But I think people generally want to help. They just don't know always know how to help. And, um, you know, I've just learned that if you just get up and do something, just do anything to help in a way that help is needed, that um, you know anything is possible. I mean, I had no no intention of continuing to do this after all this time, but um, I've got a 30-year career in telecommunications, but I've never uh, been so more moved or inspired in, in just helping someone else. I always wonder for folks that stop their lives and get involved in something like this, what motivates them? Not everyone is willing to do something like this. You know, I mean, to be completely honest, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my six-year-old for the week of Thanksgiving. She had a whole week <laughs> off of school. I mean, how many times can we go to the zoo? And um, so we I thought this would be a great adventure and teach her to do ni- something nice for someone and just turn it into something altogether different. And again, you know, I had a an attorney here in town who reached out to me right after I'd been contacted by a guy who said, I have two RVs I can donate to you. And And my friend Larry said, hey, you don't know me. My name's Larry. I'm an attorney in town. And I'll be happy to provide any legal services you need for free. And so I said, well, take care of this. This guy wants to donate too. I don't know what about this charitable deduction letter. And so the next day he filed a, a 501c3 and here we are. Woody, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Woody Faircloth is an executive with Comcast. He lives in Denver. He's a finalist for CNN's Hero of the Year. The winner will be announced Sunday. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.